Hey, it's not quite the DeLorean, but we're going back in time with a new podcast feed full of all my favorite interviews in the history of the Bill Simmons podcast. We're coming up on seven years now. I've had an unbelievable collection of athletes, celebrities, showrunners, directors, Matt Damon, Denzel Washington, Adam Sandler, Kevin Garnett, Shirley Theron, Tom Hanks, Bill Burr, Kevin Durant, Peyton Manning, The Undertaker, Eddie Vedder, Kyrie Irving. Yeah, he actually came on. Dave Grohl, Quavo, Barack Obama. I mean, what else can I tell you? I've had Al Pacino with Barry Levinson. I've had people like Steph Curry, Jason Bateman, John C. Riley, Jonah Hill. I could just, I could keep going and going. But wait, there's more. Whether it's your first time or you're planning on revisiting some of your favorites, make sure you head to BillSimmonsInterviews.TheRinger.com for the entire archive. You can sort by genre, year, and more to easily navigate all your favorite people. Follow the Bill Simmons podcast, The Interviews, on Spotify now. It's New York, New York, presented by FanDuel. The second half of the NBA season is here, and you can bet on the action with an assist from FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Parlay Hub. Filter by odds, sport, and bet type to easily find the most popular parlays and same-game parlays all on one page. Plus, start betting on the Explore page and the Pulse and Bet Live same-game parlays for every NBA game. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer. Is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit theringer.com slash RG to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100 Gambler or visit theringer.com slash RG. This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants. They're made to make you look and feel good. And there's lots of different styles to choose from. My favorite, because I walk around LA every day, I like the joggers. I'm not jogging, I'm just walking fast. But if you're working out, I would try them out. And if you want something a little sleek, maybe business-like, maybe try the ABC Slim Fit Trouser. But I am a joggers guy. I just, once COVID happened, I was just like, I'm, I want to wear jogging pants and joggers and all kinds of soft pants as much as I possibly can, especially when I'm working out. Ultra comfortable and versatile. ABC Pants are really in a league of their own. Buy a pair right now at lululemon.com. Let's roll, baby. Welcome in. It's episode one of Jacko and yours truly, J.J. Jasiszewski, breaking down the captain. Jacko, I, I can't believe I'm still fighting the tears. I've watched the episode twice. It's amazing. It's unbelievable theater. Uh, it's it, it's Yankee fan porn, fantastic, bro. How you doing today? I'm I'm good. You know, I uh, I was not a cigarette smoker before I watched this uh, documentary, but now I've taken it up because I need to smoke a cigarette after the first episode because it was so good. Yankee porn is an excellent description. I mean, it is <laughs> Yankee fan porn, dude. It oh. really is. I mean, from from every reference of Jeter's rise to what went on. You know, I'm I'm too young to really appreciate how bad the Yankees were in 89 and 90 and 91 and 92. Because for me, Jacko, listen, I really yeah. started getting into it 93, 94, and, and the Yankees were a quality team. 
I thought they did a brilliant job in this documentary for the younger Yankee fan, for the guy who's even younger than me, who's 25 and under, maybe only knows the Jeter dynasty or mm-hmm. maybe only knows the Aaron Judge teams for all I know, for them to mirror the rise of Derek Jeter coming up through Kalamazoo in the minor leagues and kind of have that going coinciding with what the Yankees were doing, I thought was fantastic. It, it, it was great. And it, this couldn't be right any more right in my wheelhouse because I, I was 25 in 1995, coinciding with the rise of Jeezer, uh, Jeter, <laughs> as I mispronounced his name. I'm four years older than him. So I lived through the lean years of the 80s, you know, they, when they didn't sniff the playoffs, when except they lost the World Series in 81. I distinctly remember that being 11 years old. I remember them being awful. I went to college in Massachusetts from 88 to 92 with a lot of Red Sox fans. And I had to take a lot of grief about how inept the Yankees were. You know, this is a team that threw a no hitter and lost the game for nothing against the White Sox. And, you know, they, they're kicking the ball all over the field, wasting Don Mattingly's years, the stump Merrill years. I remember popping champagne literally when they went 81 and 81, because it was like, they finally had turned the corner and were 500. So they def- the documentary definitely shows that the lean years and you know the rise of Jeter and turned everything around you know Jeter and the rest of the core four it, they did a good job with that and one of the more amazing things that younger people will not realize is when they show the crowd giving a standing cheering. ovation when George Steinbrenner you know I was suspended. just going to mention that cheering for goodness sakes yes. the idea of George Steinbrenner who is this iconic now beloved figure in Yankee history you you got the call of John Sterling saying. Well, isn't this something like because mm-hmm. the people at the old Yankee Stadium, Jacko, are going nuts over the fact that George wasn't going to be around the team anymore. Right. I mean, he has a different legacy now looking back and the, and the Jeter years and the dynasty sort of colored that. But before that, you know, he, he was regarded by the Yankee fan as an embarrassment because it was like you had a manager for five minutes and the manager got fired. It was trading young players on, on you know, all-stars or past all-stars, you know, the Jay Buhner, Ken Phelps scenario, all this stuff. You know, there's a litany of people uh, that they traded away that were prospects and, and the team was just inept. So he has a legacy now of, oh, look at Steinbrenner and the wonderful years and he was willing to spend money. He was, but, you know, his much ballyhooed baseball people that advised him were terrible. And thank God he got suspended because that's what led to the, you know, the documentary shows that's what led to the dynasty was Gene Michael, whose fingerprints are all over it, who was a baseball savant, who understood that these guys that were in the minors were the real deal. And you had to build around them instead of fading superstars that Steinbrenner was attracted to for, you know, box office purposes. There's no doubt, Jacko. The late 90s doesn't happen if it's not for Stick Michael and for Buck Walter, And the no idea question. of developing those young players, taking guys like Bernie Williams and getting them to the next level, holding on to the likes of Posada and Andy Pettit, and then, of course, Derek Jeter. You know, they're showing Jeter through the minor leagues. And again, this is still something for me that I'm not going to remember because, yeah, I like don't remember him being the number one overall pick. I, you know what my first memory of Derek Jeter is? Full disclosure. In like 94 or 95, I'm buying baseball cards and I'm going to the store. My mom, I guess I had like a decent report card. So she got me a bunch of baseball cards <laughs> and I'm going through and my favorite was Don Mattingly. And I love Paul Neal and, you know, Grudel up Bernie, you name it. Those 94, 95 teams. And I get a pack of cards and I see future star. And I'm like, 
who is this Derek Jeter guy? Like, I remember vividly saying that. I'm like, Derek Jeter, who, who, who is this? You're like the guy in the draft that butchered his name, you oh, know, on me, the old uh, computer. I was going to say, that's even worse. <laughs> At least I was a six-year-old kid. I was, you know, delivered a little bit of a valid excuse. Um, were you feeling, and it's a different world now, Jacko, because social media doesn't exist. Like, the way we glorify prospects now didn't necessarily happen 25, 30 years ago. But do you remember the first time Jeter kind of worked his way on a your radar? Yeah, I mean, I would watch Yankees games and, I, you know, he was talked about in 95, I think, is down on the farm. But like you say, it's not it's not like it was. It's not like it was. It, it's not now is very different than it was. Like there was no, you know, baseball America. There was no, you know, scouting the prospects. You know, I basically can tell you now what Anthony Volpe had for breakfast. It wasn't like that back in, 90, in the early 90s. You know, I remember being high on Brian Taylor because he was the number one pick, and there was all these stories about Brian Taylor for the Yankees, and he had a 95-mile-an-hour oh, curveball. He was, was going to be the greatest one. thing in the world. So my Yankee buddies and I were always like, oh, the, Brian Taylor, Brian Taylor. So he was the guy that was hyped up. And they hyped up this guy, Sam Militello, in the minor leagues as a pitcher. So they were they were, I remember much more hype about the pitchers than I do specifically about Jeter. To be honest, until Jeter came on the scene, I don't really remember him being on my radar. So the documentary shows Cheetah's rise coming from a biracial family, growing up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and this idea of basically, hey, no one is going to tell me that I can't come from Kalamazoo and be a shortstop, not just in the big leagues, but be the shortstop for the New York freaking Yankees. And, you know, Jacko, it is pretty remarkable how the Yankees get their hands on Derek Jeter. Like now that you look back on it, like they did this in a documentary, the Hall of Fame scout, Newhauser, basically says, hey, you got the number one pick, Houston. Don't screw this up. I've been doing this forever. It, it kind of reminded me of Clint Eastwood in Trouble with the Curve, like the old school <laughs> scout saying, hey, please listen to me. Right. Thankfully, the Astros take Phil Nevin. The Reds, they could have had the next Barry Larkin. They go with Chad Matola. And Jeter basically is like, oh, I, I, he had no idea that... I find it hard to believe that the kid who grew up wanting to be the Yankee shortstop had no idea the Yankees like were picking even next. Like you could see it, Jack, or how like stunned the whole Jeter family is when he gets drafted. That footage was freaking awesome. It was incredible. And and it's such a different world now because there's no green rooms and you know, wearing your suit to the draft. Baseball hasn't really risen to the level of the NBA or the NFL in that regard. But even so, it's not like you could follow on your computer or your phone and see what the picks are, know all these guys and who's going where. So that was incredible. Just like Jeter sitting around saying, don't call me because I'm waiting for my phone to ring during this time period. And he thinks he's either going number one or number five. It's incredible how Newhauser, like you say, he's in the Hall of Fame. He quit. He's like, forget it. If you're not going to take my advice on this, you didn't go pick this guy. I'm done. I'm out. See ya. Good luck, Houston. That was great. And the, the amazing thing for me is Jeter is just so... He has like this inner calm where if it was me, like, you know, growing up a Yankee fan, he had, he puts in all this work out of Kalamazoo, Michigan, and he gets drafted by the Yankees. And I don't know if it was shock or what, but I'd have been like bawling or screaming or yelling. And his mother's like, it's the Yankees. And, and his father's like, your team. And he's like, yeah, my team, the Yankees. Now, I don't know if off camera, then he went in his room and like jumped around in his bed or something. But I'm like, I, I was amazed at how ridiculously calm he was that his it dream had like come true. It seemed like his parents were more excited 
than he was. Now, maybe he was just trying to stay calm and be in the moment. And, you know, he was learning that inner Derek Jeter that he would develop over the years. But you keep hearing his mother say, it's the Yankees. It's the Yankees. And like Charles Jeter, who's a very proud man. He was like, I'm so proud of you, son. Like it was, right. it, it seemed like the parents were more excited about the child re- or going and living a dream than Derek Jeter was. I know. It was incredible. And I, I maybe he was just overwhelmed. Like he couldn't really believe it was happening. But I was watching it. I'm like, how is he so calm? Like, I, I'd have been like, oh, my God, a fist pump. I'd have been sobbing because that's just me. Like, oh, my God, I did it. I'm a Yankee. But he was just preternaturally calm. It's incredible how, how like he just even from the beginning. Right. You know, he you talk about later on, they talk about how he could handle New York and everything. I mean, he showed it right from the beginning because he reacted not like an 18 year old kid. He reacted like a veteran, like, oh, yeah, of course, I'm a Yankee. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, let's go do this. You know, it was incredible. Thank goodness they did not have social media in 1992 and 1993 because, Jacko, if we were seeing on Twitter that the number one shortstop pick for the New York Yankees has 56 errors, I would have been like, it's time to go and move to center field, pal. You're not a shortstop. Like, Buck Showalter even got the report and was like, Hey, are we Stick, sure? Can it, can this <laughs> can this kid play shortstop? And Stick right. was like, he could play shortstop. Don't worry about it. I wouldn't have that confidence after fifty six errors, dude. No, and th- that's a blessing too. Like, because you know, if if Volpe did that, like all the eggs the Yankees have put in the Volpe basket now, nowadays on Twitter and if everything else, Instagram would be blowing up. This guy can't play. Get us a shortstop. Get run him out of town. So he was he was blessed to be right in the time where he should have been. But that's the truth. And just and and that stick, Michael, who was just a genius, an underrated genius, saw that and stuck with him. And with, you know, and mercifully, Steinbrenner was out of the picture because, you know, if Steinbrenner was there, he'd say, we you know, we gave this kid a signing bonus. We picked him with our first pick and he's booting the ball all over the infield. Get him out of here. We're, we're, we're done. Like he would have cut bait as quickly as he possibly could. So that was another fortuitous event that Steinbrenner was not there to say, get him out of town, mercifully. So we have different vantage points of the rise of the New York Yankees. I basically just walked right into it. You got to really appreciate it. So 93 happens. They have one of the most underrated off seasons, I believe, in the history of baseball, Jacko, because they took a team that had Don Mattingly, and a bunch of kids who didn't know how to win. They go and get Wade Boggs from Boston. They go and get Jimmy Key from Toronto Blue Jays. And they get Paul O'Neill from the Cincinnati Reds for Roberto Kelly, which was highway freaking robbery. And a lot of Yankee fans probably hated the trade at the time because Roberto Kelly was an all-star. Who I did. I liked O'Neal? Roberto Kelly. Yeah, That's what I mean. I a lot him. of people liked Roberto Kelly. And Paul O'Neill, the reputation was hothead. Pinella can't stand him. And he can't hit lefties. But... Right. In 93, it all clicks. Was that the moment for you where you really started to believe they were onto something? Or did you need to see it again in 1994? No, I knew. I mean, like I say, when they they had a they were awful and then they had a steady climb. And when they got to be 81 and 81, I I was like, well, they're moving in the right direction. When they went out and got Wade Boggs, I was actually, I my father, God rest his soul, was not a he was not a baseball fan. He, his only team he liked in sports was the New York Football Giants. But he would make fun of me about the Yankees because he didn't care. He didn't like the Yankees. And so when they got Wade Boggs, who I hated, I mean I hated growing up in Connecticut. 
as a Yankee fan. And it was always like, who's better hitter, Mattingly or Boggs? So of course, I was like all Mattingly all the time. So I hated Wade Boggs. When the Red Sox lost the World Series in 86 and they showed Wade Boggs on the bench sobbing, I was so happy. 16-year-old me was such a little prick. I was so happy to see Wade Boggs sobbing. So I'm like, I was so torn about Wade Boggs now being on the Yankees. And, and it was the proof of the Jerry Seinfeld thing of you're just rooting for laundry. You know, it's true. You're just rooting for the uniform. So I, I knew that he could help them. I always liked Jimmy Key in Toronto. So I thought that was a good signing. So yeah, you could see things were moving in the right direction. That they were definitely on the on the improve, no question about it. That must have been it. You knew Simmons at the time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. So yeah. it's weird you weren't so you weren't giving him shit about Boggs coming to the Yankees. You were kind of conflicted. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't care for it because I never cared for Wade Boggs and be and, you know and and I don't even know if it was true. I don't think it was, but I think there was always sort of a manufactured rivalry between Mattingly and Boggs because the hitting thing, and they were always like you know, one top five in the hit in the AL batting average. And so I know among my buddies and I, it was always a battle as to who was a better hitter. And Sports Illustrated did an article one time where it was like Boggs and Mattingly and they visited Ted Williams and they talked about hitting. And it, so there was always a perceived rivalry. And I remember wondering, like, are these guys going to get along? I, I don't think they really disliked each other. I think that was sort of a media manufactured thing. But I, at the time I was like, mm, I don't know if this is going to work, but yeah, you were happy to have Wade Boggs because you knew he'd, you know, he's a great hitter. He's going to get on base. So, um, but I was like, mm, I never loved Boggs, but I got over it pretty quickly. So being the, being the Yankee phony that I am. well, listen, I know for me it's interesting. Damon, I said bring him on. The Yankees need him. The Red Sox beat the Yankees. So when the Yankees signed Johnny Damon, I was thrilled. When they traded for Clemens, I couldn't stand Clemens because right. remember my memories of Clemens more so than with the Red Sox. But with the Blue Jays, when he right. went back-to-back Cy Youngs, he owned the Yankees. He threw it Knobloch and Jeter all the time. He started a brawl. Like, when they got Clemens, I was like, fuck this guy. They traded away David Wells, who I loved. Like, that right. That was, that was one brutal. where Clemens had to, like, win me over. So, right. Boggs, for me, it's interesting. I really I have no recollection of him as a Red Sox. And my recollection of Boggs is all-star, mustache, third base, and riding the horse in 96, which we'll get right. to, I'm sure, in future episodes. But right. it's crazy to think about 94, Jacko. So, like, for anybody who's under the age of 30, right? Like, anybody who's enjoying this Yankees season now, imagine the Yankees are going to go play another three weeks. They're going to have the best record in the American League. And then all of a sudden, they're going to pull the rug out from under you and say, eh, guess what? We're not playing September. We're not playing the World Series. We're canceling the World Series. Jacko, I have to imagine... For a lot of people. Now, I'm a sucker, so I'd be back immediately. But was it weird in 95, like just going and immediately embracing the Yankees again, even with 94 being the way that it was with the strike canceling the year? Yeah, I remember joking about it with Simmons vividly because I was like, you know, I'm out. The Yankees had, you know, the, the Yankees at this point were 16 years without winning a World Series and they hadn't been in one in 13. And so I'm like, the strike, you know, the Yankees finally get good. They go on strike, I'm out. And then the Yankees go out in the offseason and they sign Blackjack McDowell, who was the best pitcher in baseball or one of the best pitchers in baseball at the time. And I'm like, I'm back in. Let's go. Let's go, Yanks. You know, so that the signing of McDowell brought me back in. Um, but 94 hurt because they you really thought this we're going to make a run here in the, in the postseason for the first time. And 
you know, I, I remember them winning in 78 vaguely. I remember them losing the World Series in 81 more so when I was 11. But like 24, you know, you understand what's going on. So I was looking forward to them going to the postseason as they looked like they were going to. And the World Series, as, as I just predicted, because they had, the as you say, the best record in the American League. So the strike hurt. But yeah, I was I was all in in 95 when they had, you know, McDowell. And, it, you know, you kind of sensed it was Mattingly's last year. And you were hoping they would do something for him. Well, in 95, they get off to a terrible start. Terrible, terrible start. And they showed Jeter's first game in the kingdom, which is a clip now that I think people have seen a zillion times. He doesn't get a hit in his first game. Documentary says he and Charles go to McDonald's afterwards. He gets the hit in the second game. And isn't it surreal? Thinking about it now, Jacko. Who's greeting Derek Jeter at first base wearing a Seattle Mariners uniform? One of his good buddies. Yep. And one of the iconic Yankees in Tino Martinez, like seeing that like footage and like hearing Dave Niehaus, the iconic Mariner announcer say, well, he and Alex Rodriguez are going to be great shortstops for right. years to come. Like eerie, eerie shit, dude. It's incredible. It's like Jeter's life really is a fairy tale. And it's like if you wrote this in a Hollywood movie, you know, kid grows up in Kalamazoo, Michigan and is a Yankee fan because of his Beloved grandmother, Dot Connor, underrated MVP, maybe, of this episode, who made him into a Yankee fan, <laughs> diehard Yankee fan. It looks like my late grandmother a little bit, so I, I like Dot. But uh, And he grows up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, becomes the pick of his favorite team and the Yankees, and then he you know, be- rises to glory and everything else. But right there, and then in the beginning, he's there with Tino, who's like his best friend now, one of his best friends. They live next door to each other in Tampa, or did. And then there's there's right from the beginning, you have him in the A-Rod thing. Like it's it's you can't if you wrote this in Hollywood, they'd be like, eh, I don't know. That is a little phony, you know, but it really happened. I would have thrown out the script. I wouldn't have <laughs> exactly. believed it. And, you know, I remember being a kid, Jacko, when the Yankees traded for David Cohn. And I think I found out when I was on a beach vacation picking up the newspaper, shockingly down in either LBI or Ocean City, New Jersey. The, the Post and the Daily News, we were still able to get it. And at this point, I was a Yankee nut. So, like, I was reading the paper every day. I was checking the box scores. We'd listen to 770 when the Yankees were on. Like, it's not, you know, for kids growing up, they're on the dopey iPhones. They can watch. They can listen. They can do whatever the hell they want to do. Like, I kind of had to really develop that organically. And I remember, right. oh, this cone guy. They had, like, the cone heads. I was like, all right, this is, this is going to be a game changer for the Yankees. And Jacko, if they don't get David Cohn in 1995, that team doesn't sniff the postseason. No, that that was a phenomenal that was a phenomenal move because you had David Cohn and Jimmy Key, and you had a serious pitching staff. And McDowell. and Key got hurt, if you remember, in '95 yep. with the rotator cuff. That's he right. He got hurt, so that, and you know who really came up? They didn't talk about this in the documentary. That was Pettit's first year coming up. Pettit was yeah. big for them down the stretch. He was, he was, and that yeah. So Cohn. I always liked David Cohn when he was on the Mets. I remember on the Mets. I remember him on the Royals. He, I always liked him. So I was so happy when the Yankees went out and got him because he was a proven winner. And you were like, oh, we got a little something going now. And you just knew like he was going to deliver. And he did. I mean, he he delivered so many big games in his career, so many postseason games. And yeah, that was a phenomenal move by them. Phenomenal. Did you go to either game one or game two against the Mariners? You did not. I did not. No, I did not. No, I was in law school at the time. I watched. Oh, so both. you were, you were being well behaved. You were being. Uh, you were well, being. You were being a good law school student. All things I did. considered. 
I did. I stayed up a little too Jack, late. Because honestly, Jack, if we could yes. get in the time machine now and we could go to, like, if you could tell me, hey, I could go to one Yankee game over the last 30 or 35 years, where would I want to be? Game two against the Mariners is the game I would choose. Is, is that crazy? I don't think so. Well, Jeter says that it's the loudest he's ever heard the stadium. I think he says that in the documentary talking about game two. And he, he's been there for a lot of subsequent loud moments to that. And he said, you know, literally the ground was shaking. You know, so you can only imagine because that, I mean, the lean years, you know, the fans really, really, really felt that. And Mattingly was so beloved and is so beloved. Like, it was like, we got to do this for Donnie. And it was like the fans, I think, probably felt that. I know I felt it at home. So I can only imagine in the stadium, it was like, this is Donnie's last run. We got to get one for him. Try to get him a ring was like, a was an ultimate goal. So I can only imagine, like, I remember being at Fenway before they won in 2004 and 2003, and you could feel it in the stadium, like the desperation, like the eagerness. And I think Yankee Stadium had to be like that in game two in, in 95, had to be, because it was like, and when they won that, you know, when they won that game, when Larry assists the home run, I was like, I was convinced, like, we're going to the, we're going to the ALCS because they'll win one out of three in, in Seattle, right? So that was, that was extra heartbreaking. But yeah, game two had to be magical to be there. They win the first two games. Donnie is instrumental in winning the first two games. Yep. All the drama with the Lairitz Homer in the rain. And then they go to that dump, that house of horrors. I hate that fucking place. Thank God they blew it up. And when I think about stadiums that make me sick, Jacko, the kingdom makes me sick. Randy Johnson beats him in game three. Game four, they have a big lead, and Edgar Martinez kills him. He hits a home run off of Kamenicki. Then he hits a salami to dead center field against Wetland, who couldn't get anybody out in a big spot in 95. And then they play game five. And I will never forget game five. It's amazing. I'm seven years old, but I remember all the details of this day. It was like a Sunday. It was like a late afternoon, early evening game. Yep. And you could just feel the, the, the pressure. You could tell what kind of game it was going to be. And Donnie hits that ball down the left field line and gives them a lead. And it's like, the Yankees this are going to win this thing. David Cohn is going to bring it home. Were you watching that game saying, Buck, what are you doing letting David Cohn throw 130 or 140 pitches? Or were you of the mindset, hey, I don't trust Wetland. I don't know. As good as Mariano was in game two, he, he is this unknown minor league quantity. Like, let's, I know it's easy to say for Yankee fans, oh, you had Mariano Rivera in the bullpen. You didn't go to Mariano Rivera. In 1995, Mariano Rivera is not Mariano Rivera. So for you watching that game, were you okay with sticking with Cohn against Absolutely. Dutch Strange? You were. Yeah, because Mar Wetland had won it the day before or the game before, and Mariano was not Mariano then. It's easy to look back now and be like, oh, you got Mariano Rivera, just put him in. But he wasn't Mariano then. You know, he didn't become Mariano until the following year and and really out. You know, Wetland was still the closer in 96, but he, you know, he was lethal in the, in the seventh and eighth. Mariano was the following year, but he wasn't that yet in 95. So I was completely fine with Buck riding Cone in that game because he was a known quantity and you figured like Cone was going to get through it. I mean, the problem with that is Edgar Martinez is, became a legendary Yankee killer. Like going back in my youth, it was like George Brett and Eddie Murray always killed the Yankees. Later, unfortunately, it was it was Big Poppy and, and Manny Ramirez, Poppy more so that killed them. 
But Edgar Martinez joins the ranks of great Yankee killers. And he was just, I mean, you got to tip your cap. He's one of the, one of the greatest hitters ever. And he, he and Griffey, you know, who's one of the and greatest Griffey players ever. Griffey hit five home runs in that series. Griffey hit five home runs. And Edgar Martinez basically hit 600 and ate the Yankees lunch. And a yep. lot of people forget this, Jacko. They're going against Randy Johnson, who comes out of the bullpen. They yep. take the lead against Randy Johnson. I remember right. it was like a miracle. Randy right. Velarde hit this dribble between third and short. Pat Kelly yep. scores, and they go to Jack McDowell. And I don't know if you felt this way. The minute Joey Cora dropped that drag bunt and Mattingly just misses the tag, knowing Griffey and Martinez were coming up, you knew the Yankees were finished. Yeah, it was just you can get a sense about these things and you, you had a feeling and it was just like, it was awful. That game, that game really, that game was a heartbreaker because there had been so many dry years and you were like, this is finally it. And then it was like just another heartbreak. That was a rough one. That was rough. I remember hysterically crying. Now remember, I'm a, I'm a seven year old kid at the time, Jack. I was 25. I'm sure I got drunk. So yeah, you would have got, if I were your age, I would have gotten drunk. So for me, the, uh, the tears were the equivalents of, uh, you know, Corona lights that I would have been consuming throughout the baseball game. I thought this was the line of the documentary in episode one. Joel Sherman, and we'll get to MVPs in a little bit. I thought he was fabulous in this episode, might I add. He goes and says at the end of the episode, if you would have told me after game 595 and after the 95 offseason that this would be the beginning of a dynasty, I would have said you were crazy. Because remember, Jacko, that offseason was as unpopular as it gets from a Yankee perspective. Mattingly retires. Buck gets fired. They lose a lot of fan favorites on that team. Velarde is gone. Mike Stanley is gone. And as we know, the rest, as they say in the business, is history. You know, that was it was so well done in the documentary and it brought back so many memories. And I got misty about four different times when they had, you know, Mattingly like just broke my heart because if anybody in history ever deserved a ring, it, it was Mattingly. I mean, as a Yankee and, and you wish he could have come back one more year in 96, even if he was a guy off the bench just to get him a ring. But he didn't want to do it that way. And he, you know, he went out on his own terms. But I mean, the documentary was so heartbreaking when Cohn talks about like the finality of it and like the clubhouse and and then they're on the plane ride home. And he says it's like the saddest plane ride they've ever been on. And he and Blackjack McDowell are at the back of the plane with a bottle of whiskey and Mattingly comes over and sits between them and just hugs them. I was like, oh, my God, this is like the saddest thing I've ever heard. It was just heartbreaking. And, and you know, you, it's great to look back now and you know, well, it, the sad days don't last. And then it was the glory days. But that was that was really, really, really well done. And you just felt for Mattingly because he was like, that was the best team we had. And, you know, even Jeter is like, you know, the the he was the first guy out of the dugout that whole series, even How though about he wasn't Cone on the roster. How about him after the Doug Strange walk? Cone <laughs> right. basically is like, get the hell away from me, kid. Right, right. He just goes back and he said he went back. You know, Cone talks about crying in a towel, you know, like a little leaguer. So that 95 team is, is, you know, it was the bridge, you know, it was the, it was the bridge from the bad years to the, to the glory days. And it's just a shame that they couldn't get one for Mattingly and, you know, the documentary brought that all back for me. And, you, you know, Don is just so, so good. It's just so good. And I just, I love him so much to this day. So to watch that was, was really, really well done, but, but heartbreaking. 
pretty wild, too, that Jeter and Posada are basically on the bench the entire month of September as the Yankees are winning every single game yep. and on the bench, like when Mattingly hits the home run and Gary Thorne's call, by the way, still gives me chills. Hang on to the roof. Right. Goodbye. Like, I just ooh, watch it every great. time. But you see Jeter with like this shit-eating grin on his face, clapping, going nuts. And there's no doubt in my mind, Jacko, that experience for them and then dealing with 95, I think it kind of planted, not that Jeter needed it anyway, but it kind of like planted this thought in Jeter's mind. Like, hey, when I get a shot, we ain't losing like this. I can't Absolutely. handle this. Absolutely. As awful as it was, it was a great learning experience for him and Pettit and Posada and Mariano. And I think it had to be, it had to be a building block for them, the dynasty. I mean, it had to be because they got a little taste of it and they're like, we want more, you know? I love the thing where Showalter's like, I'm going to bring you guys up, but if I hear you're out running the streets, I'm going to send you right back down to the instructional league. And then he said, I heard they didn't leave the hotel room for two weeks, that they just stayed in their hotel room because they didn't want to get in trouble and they didn't want to get sent down. They wanted to keep, you know, keep rolling with the Yankees. So I, that's funny too. That's good. So what we're going to do for these episodes, we got a couple of awards we're going to give out. All right. Um, we are going to start with the MVP of the episode. Uh, I'm going to give the floor to you on this, Jacko. So where, where are we going here? Episode one, the captain. Who's our MVP? Well, I mean, I'm tempted to give it to Doc Connors, his grandmother, who, you know, grew, made him into a Yankee fan. And according to his mother, taught him baseball. But I'm going to give co-MVPs to his parents because, you know, his parents were just phenomenal and are phenomenal. But like, being a biracial couple in Kalamazoo, Michigan in the 1970s couldn't, you know, they made it clear it, it wasn't easy. You know, they, his father's in the army, his mother was a nurse, you know, they had to deal with things I'm sure from their families and everything else. And to, to just everything they gave to Jeter and made him into the guy that he is. And I thought they were great in episode one. So I'm going to give it to his parents, co-MVPs. Very tough to top Dr. Charles, and Dorothy Jeter, who seem like just wonderful, wonderful people. Like, I want to hang uh, with the Jeter family. I want to be adopted uh, somewhat by the Jeter family. But I'm going to give my MVP to Joel Sherman because I thought he delivered a couple of lines that were just absolutely off the rails. The one about the dynasty at the end of the 95 season. How about the line about Stick Michael? Basically, it was like, uh, you know, he can't. He couldn't talk politics. He couldn't right. talk this, but he knew how to read a baseball player. And then he had the line, Jacko, about uh, I, I wrote this down. I don't write much down during a documentary, but I wanted to make sure I reference this. The people who had George's ear, not exactly the finest church-going folk. So to me, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to give Joel the MVP because he hit on a couple of lines throughout the course of the hour that had me basically laughing my ass off. Very fair. Very fair. Yeah, the, the whole thing with George and poor Howie Spira and trying to dig up dirt on Winfield because Steinbrenner hated Winfield so much. Don't People you forget find what it, it was amazing, like. by the way, that Jeter, who idolized Winfield, and they talk about this in episode right. one, never asked Winfield, like, hey, what was all that about with you and George? Like, there's no way they didn't have that conversation, right? Like, I don't believe. No, that. I think Jeter's probably doing a little spin there because he, you know, he Steinbrenner gave him a lot of money and he had to deal with a lot. He had to deal with Steinbrenner a lot, but he loved Winfield, so he had, you know, he had to walk a fine line there. I'll, I'll give him that one. So the next award we're going to give out on every episode, and I 
firmly believe this. I said this when Randy Wilkins was on the director Sunday, who I talked to a couple of days ago, Jacko. Derek Jeter reminds me a lot of Michael Corleone. He just does. He has a lot of Corleone-esque elements. And I'm not saying he's a murderer. Without the murder. You know, right. he, he doesn't ditch K, you know, like I'm not, I'm not going there. But you, right. you get my drift. All right. For anybody who wants to take it technical. Here is my Corleone moment of the episode. To me, it was the idea of people in Kalamazoo saying, yes. there's no way you're going to be a big leaguer. There's no way you're going to go and be shortstop for the New York Yankees. Nobody is going to make the big leagues from Kalamazoo. And he goes, who the fuck are you to tell me that? To right. have that and Judah basically say, I like telling people, I told you so. That was my Corleone moment. That was a thousand percent the Corleone moment. I was going to say the exact same one because I watched it. And he he obviously, I, maybe great athletes have to take things personally because, you know, the Jordan thing where he's like, I took that personally. Um, you know, the, Jeter took it personally when people were like, you're from Kalamazoo. It's not a warm weather state. You can't play 365 days out of the year. You're not going to be a major leaguer. And he, I think his quote was something like, well, fuck you. Just because you didn't become a major leaguer doesn't mean I can't. Who the fuck are you? <laughs> so, yeah, it was classic Jeter and absolutely. And I think that, you know, that, among other things, was a fire and an intensity that drove him. That he has this internal drive, like Michael Corleone, <laughs> where he's outwardly very calm and serene. But inside, he he is giving you the death stare. And and that's what it was, that, he, you know, that the, the haters and the doubters obviously drove him and it, it worked, you know, it worked. He was there in the garage and, you know, hitting 250 ground, hit, hitting 250 balls and taking 200 grounders off the wall or whatever. So, yeah, that was definitely the Corleone moment. No question. I have a feeling we're going to have the same favorite memory. I'm going to let you go first. Well, I probably already referenced mine. Well, there was a couple moments I, I really, really, I really liked. I, the, and a funny one was when, Jeter meets Pettit for the first time and they're in the minor leagues and oh, Jeter's Pettit being kind of awkward I love and he it. turns to Pettit, Pettit looks at him and Jeter goes, Hey, you look a little bit like my uncle. And Pettit just gives him one of these and just turns straight around without any response. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. <laughs> and Jeter remembered it and Pettit's like, I don't remember that. But you know, Jeter obviously has a, has a memory where he remembers any kind of slight. So it's, it's amazing. He didn't cut Pettit out of his life after that, but um, he, uh, he remembered that that was funny. I liked the Mattingly part where he's like, you know, when we're on the Mattingly, a seasoned veteran beloved by every, everybody and in spring training, when they're on a backfield and he's like, you never know who's watching. We better run because the Yankees have us run all the time. We have to run. But I think my favorite moment was probably after the after 95, just like Mattingly's comments in the locker room and going to hug McDowell and Cohn while they're downing their sorrows and whiskey on the plane. That was my favorite part of the documentary because it just brought back so much about that team for me. I'm going with the Mattingly Jeter backfields Fort Lauderdale story because it's like this ultimate story of two Yankee icons. One, you didn't know it was going to be a Yankee icon at the time. And it's not really a passing the torch moment because it took a couple of years for Derek Jeter to be Derek Jeter. But it's like one of those stories you look back on and it's just like, it should give you the chills as a Yankee fan. Right. The idea that like, Jeter was able to take this from the great Don Mattingly and he kind of brings it with him into the 1990s. The funniest moment of the doc for me is the idea of the Yankee fan cheering that George was suspended and having Sterling basically documented Jacko. Right. Oh, man, dude. So I think I, and that's a tough, that. that's a tough one for Sterling too, because he's getting paid by Steinbrenner and the Yankees. So he can't be like, 
oh, the fans are cheering. You know, they, they you got to kind of bag that, bob that a little bit, you know, in the spin of like, well, uh, boy, he's suspended and hopefully comes back soon. But that was turned out to be the saving grace for the Yankees and made them into the dynasty. But ba- back to the Mattingly thing. I mean, I yield to no one in my love of Mattingly and, and I will take that forever. But like, that's the greatness of him. You're Don Mattingly, right? You're get you're near the end of the string. You have nothing left. You know, you don't have a ring, but you have nothing left to accomplish as a Yankee. And you could blow off this kid who's a rookie and highly touted. You might even have some jealousy towards that. Like this kid, you know, they're already turning to this kid that he's the next big thing. And what does Mattingly do? Takes him under his wing and shows him the Yankee way, so to speak. You know, this is how we do it on the Yankees. And you never know who's watching. I love Mattingly using the DiMaggio quote, which is a famous thing where DiMaggio says, I play hard every day because I never know who's watching me for the first time. So even on the backfield in, you know, I don't even know if they were in Tampa at the time or they were still somewhere else in Florida, but on some backfield of a spring training facility and Mattingly's like, we're going to hustle. We're going to run because that's what we do as Yankees, you know, phenomenal. Jacko, we're going to have a bunch of old Yankees join us throughout this Jeter documentary. Uh, How fired up are you to welcome in the King, Jimmy Lairitz? Extremely, extremely. I love Lairitz. I love Lairitz. Two of the biggest underrated runs in in the history of the Yankees, right? 95 and a, the 96 home run, nothing could top that in my lifetime. How can it? Nothing No, can. that was the key moment in the 96 series, which then led to the, you know, the most recent great Yankees dynasty. So that underrated player, Lairitz, underrated moments for Jimmy. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to meeting him. Can't wait. Jimmy Lairitz, the king. The king. Coming up next. Oh, hold up. Smell test. Go ahead. Sniff those pits. Now, your bits. Feet. Toes. Come on. Could be fresher, right? It's all good. Old Spice Total Body Deodorant Spray is gentle enough to use all over your body, giving you 24-7 lasting freshness with daily use, from pits to toes and down below. So every smell test gets a... (sighs) Shop for Old Spice Total Body Deodorant. So with episode one of the Jeter documentary dropping, I thought it'd be the perfect opportunity to welcome in a guy who was with the Yankees at the bottom and found a way to crawl all the way to the top and have one of the seminal moments of 1996. That, of course, Jacko, is the king, Jimmy Larence. What's happening, Jimmy? Gentlemen, what's happening? How are you guys doing today? Jimmy, we're doing great. Uh, we're feeling all sorts of nostalgia after watching this Jeter documentary. And, you know, they did such a fantastic job of kind of showing the rise of Derek Jeter through the minor leagues and the rise of your Yankee teams. And you're one of the few guys who was a part of the Yankees when they were losers. And you also happen to be a part of the Yankees when they got to the top of the mountain. So I guess let's start here. You're coming up through the minor leagues. You get to put on the Yankee pinstripes and the Yankees stink. What was the vibe? What was the mood? What was the feel around the organization when you came up to the big leagues? Yeah, I mean, believe it or not, as bad as the big league club was, George was not going to rip Phil from the minor leagues. He always wanted to go get free agents. He went after every free agent that there possibly was. It was kind of a joke in the minor leagues that I led the league in two two years hitting. I led the league. I didn't didn't get moved up. It It was almost like, you know what? Let's play really good for the Yankees in the minor leagues. We'll get traded, and we'll finally get to the big leagues with another club. And it was kind of the mindset that a lot of us had, that you know, just 
play good till AAA, and, and we'll be part of a trade for a big free agent, and then we'll finally get to the big leagues with another club. Well, when George got suspended and Gene Michael took over, that all changed. The first thing Gene did was call me up in 1990. He called me up and he, he pulled me in the office. And he said, hey, we got an opportunity here that if you get off to a good start, that you're going to open the doors for a lot of other guys that are down there waiting. And he, he knew that mindset that we all had down there. And sure enough, I got off to a good start. Then they bring up Kevin Moss, and he gets off to an even better start. And then Oscar Azokar comes up and adds some spark. So all of a sudden, this new influx of young players from the farm system was working for the Yankees. And George couldn't do much about it because he was on suspension. So that, that was the beginning of everything. And like you mentioned, we lost, I think, 96 games the first year in 1990. We lost 92, I think, in, 90, in 92. And, and then they got rid of Stump Merrill. They bring in Buck Showalter. And then things start to change. So when was the moment for you where you felt like the turnaround was coming? Was it 93 or really was it 94? Because listen, 94, you, you guys were the best team in the American League. It looked like you guys were going to get to the World Series. But what about 93, the idea of O'Neill coming in, the idea of Boggs coming in and Jimmy Key coming in? Do you almost feel like you guys needed those type of veterans to show you guys, hey, this is how we go and win? Yeah, it was a great job, like I said, by, by Gene Michael uh, and, and Buck to pick out certain players that they knew would fit in with the young kids and were able to lead us. And uh, like you mentioned, O'Deal, Wade Boggs, all these guys that came in, it just it, it became a very good combination. But I think the one thing in 93 that established is that the entire locker room had saw how hard Buck Showalter worked, how much he came to the field before anybody. He was the last one to leave. But just sitting on the bench, listening to Buck's baseball knowledge, I think it was the first time that everybody started buying into the Kool-Aid. You know, hey, this, guy, this guy's a good manager. He's smart. The only thing Buck was missing back then that he has now is the player relationship more with a personality. And I think Buck got that once he went into television and radio. He, he learned his personality. And now you're seeing the byproduct of not only for me, the smartest manager I ever played for in baseball, but now somebody that knows how to deal with the players also. Um, Buck Showalter and Gene Michael were the reason that organization turned around at the time because they gave us younger guys a chance. I mean, the, you know, the documentary really shows that even when, you know, Mattingly, who's a seasoned veteran at that point, beloved in New York, and he talks about Jeter, you know, when Jeter is in the, in the camp and he's like, we're on the back backfield, you know, nobody's around, but he's like, we with the Yankees, we run. We have to run to the next spot. You know, we always have to be moving. That was the Yankee way. Was that something that you guys were cognizant of, that somebody was always watching, be it, you know, George in his box with binoculars or, or coaches or whomever, that that was just instilled in you guys? Like, we always need to be, like, doing something, looking like we're active? Well, I got a funny story on that. Okay, the first time in the minor league, we were playing in Tampa, and we stayed at George Steinbrenner's hotel. Right, and we you know, we all went out for some drinks after the game, and we had a curfew, and and a few of us came in maybe maybe fifteen minutes past curfew, and you know we're young kids, we've been out drinking, and all of a sudden the security guard goes, "Hey guys, I'm not supposed to do this, but I'm a big Yankee fan. Can you find a ball for me?" 
And we're all stupid young kids. We're like, oh, yeah, sure. We'll sign the ball. Put <laughs> that ball and took it to Mr. Steinbrenner. So here's the guy's <laughs> Oh, man. You guys got dimed oh, out by the no. security guard, Jimmy. Oh, man. See, George, George always knew what was cooking, man. George, I, they, that eye in the sky, it's no joke, man. There's no lie. Okay. Yeah. Derek Jeter, when was the first time you in minor league camp, or maybe it was you, you're with the big club, and he's this first-round pick coming in. What was your first impression of Jeter when you met him? The first time I really started to get to know Derek was 1995 offseason. I, I knew we were switching over to Tampa for spring training. I was living in Fort Lauderdale. I bought a place in San Key down on the West Coast so I could be near spring training. And Derek was there also working out at the minor league complex. Got an opportunity to meet him. Kind of, you know, got to be good friends with him. I, I, my wife would cook him dinner. We'd bring him over to the house. We'd play some basketball. We, you know, we, we got to know each other pretty well in that offseason. And the one thing that I always tell people about that I really respected was this kid, I had to tell him at the complex in Tampa, slow down. Spring training's not for three more months, you know, two more months. Because we were working out in January together. I said, you got two more months. You'll get plenty of time. He's like, nope. This is what I do. This is how I go about it. He would take he would take two hundred ground balls. He would take two hundred and fifty swings in the cage. No matter what, that was his routine. And you kind of respected it. You're like, okay, you know what? This kid's here to work, and we, and he's working hard. Um, and then, of course, going into that first spring training in '96, he uh, he showed everyone that when Tony Fernandez got hurt, that here's my opportunity, and I'm going to take full advantage of. It. One thing that's sort of alluded to in the documentary, and I, I as a fan had always read about in the past too, uh, I think, especially with Bernie Williams, I think, who was kind of a quiet guy. And, and you and Bernie are really like the two bridges from the Stump Merrill years, let's call it, to the dynasty years. Bernie has talked about this before. That's That was kind of a rough clubhouse, wasn't it? Were there guys that were really like, it was like hard to acclimate, right? Pre- like pre-95, like the you know, Stump Merrill years, let's call it, in the 90s. Was that an especially tough clubhouse? Do you remember that? Yeah, it was a very veteran-related you know, team. A lot of free agents, a lot of guys that didn't know the Yankee history that respected the Yankee history. And, of course, us young bucks coming up, you know, they wanted to put us in our place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a matter of coming up to help them. They felt like, oh, these, guys, these young kids are going to take our jobs and we're going to give them a hard time. And, you know, the Mel Hall, Bernie Williams thing has been documented everywhere. Um, but this is where Don Mattingly, for me, is my favorite. Is always, anybody asked me, who was your favorite teammate? When I first got called up, my first day walking in to Yankee Stadium, because I got called up in Baltimore, and I walked into Yankee Stadium three days later for my first time, and I walk into the locker room, and my locker is right next to Don Mattingly. <laughs> and, I'm, you know, and I knew Donnie a little bit, but not a lot. And he comes in and he sits down and he goes, hey, kid, just remember, you got here, but the only way to stay here is you need to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. And you know what? It just opened up a door for me to listen to him, to talk to him, to, be, to know that he was approachable. Because to me, he was the, you know, the hit king, Don Maddox. Sure. And there was some intimidation there. He really made it a point. No, hey, listen, I'm here for all 25. When Donnie was getting hurt that year, in the years to come, I took his position, and he'd right. be the first one. He'd be the first one out on the field to help me 
maybe hold a guy on a certain way that would help the team win. That's just the kind of guy Donnie was. And so I got the other way. Bernie got the hardcore. Right. I got, yeah, I got the accepted part. Did you almost feel, Jimmy, that in 95, you guys were playing for something greater because it was this idea of trying to get Donnie in the playoffs? Like, that 95 year, first ever wild card, you guys were unbelievable in September. You needed that pick-me-up after the strike. I felt like David Cohn was the pick-me-up because he was money, won basically every game down the stretch. And then you guys get into the playoffs, man. And I don't have to tell you, game two, in the rain, walking it off, one of the more epic Yankee playoff games, I'd say, of the last 30 years. And that place rocking for Don Mattingly. You guys had to feel like in 95, you were playing for something greater with the idea of trying to win it for Donnie. Oh, I guarantee you talked to Buck Showalter. He'd be the first one to tell you that. Buck reminded us every day, we got to get this guy to the playoffs. We got to get this guy to the playoffs. We all knew We all knew that this was going to be Donnie's last year because we saw what he had to go through just to get on the field. That there was no way that he could maintain that for another year. I mean, there were, there were things that he was doing, waking up at the uh, on the road, on the hotel, going down to the pool, swimming for 45 minutes to an hour, just to be able to get his back so he could play, you know, it, the things that he went through. So we knew this was Donnie's last shot. And we did pretty much play for Don Madeley in that. that That 95 team, I mean, well, that was so in my wheelhouse because I'm, well, I'm 52. So I'm born in 1970. So I've, I have vague recollection. I've been a Yankee fan my whole life. I have vague recollections of the 78 team, but I grew up in Connecticut. So it's Yankee Red Sox split territory, right? So all my a lot of my friends are Red Sox fans. We're always talking trash. Who's a better hitter, Mattingly or Boggs? I love Don Mattingly. Watching this documentary, I got misty about three different times. Watching episode one with Donnie stories and '95 and the heartbreak of '95. Jeter said, you know, 95, that's probably the loudest he's ever heard the stadium. I mean, that that the fan base, speaking as a fan, the fan base was so hungry in 95, especially in 94. You guys have the best record in baseball and the strike hits. There's no World Series. You figure this is the first one since 78. You were lucky enough or, or, or talented enough that you won rings in 96 and 99. But how much did that 95 playoff loss hurt? It had to be murder, right? Yeah, you know, you know what? It was really interesting because... Donnie tells you the story. You know, guys were all in the locker room. You know, we were all crying and we were all sad. But then it got to a point where we were like, you know what? This was one of the greatest playoff series in history. And we didn't really lose. They beat us. Right. When someone beats you like that, it's a little more acceptable. And by the time we all got dressed and ready to go, we were all like, okay. You know, we were still down, but we were like, okay. So as soon as we walked into the wise room, and you see Donnie's wife come up to him and give him a hug. And she's just bawling. because We all know that's it. This is it. Right. It, it, everybody, again, you know, just realizing that, you know what, we just we just blew something that we had a great opportunity to, to send Donnie off even in a better way. Um, but it was it was just a, it was just like I said, it was it was great just to be able to get him there so he could say I got there one time. Right. Right. And that had a few, I mean, that was sort of the fuel for the dynasty eventually too, right? 95. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. We came back the next year and we said, we're not doing this again. We need, we need to get on. <laughs> they mentioned this in a documentary, Jim. Joel Sherman says it, that if you would have said after the 95 offseason, Buck's gone, Donnie's gone, 
Velarde's gone. Stanley's gone. Let's be honest. That was a very unpopular Yankee offseason. It sounds crazy to say, but Torrey getting hired got ripped. Bringing in Girardi got ripped. Uh, all sorts of moves that were made. A lot of people thought head scratchers. Sherman says, if you would have told me after that offseason that this would be the start of a dynasty, I would have said you were absolutely crazy. 96, you're there. When was the moment for you when you're playing on that 96 team and you're like, even though this is different, even though we got a lot of new faces, we got a chance to be something special? Well, I think from day one when Joe Torre took over, you know, Joe, Joe hired the best coaches that he could possibly think of that could take his job. They were that all could be managers, but all had a lot of respect from the players because of the history they had in the game. The Chris Chambliss, you know, the Willie Randolphs, Jose Cardinal, Tony Cloninger, you know, Mel Stoudemire. And then of course, Don Zimmer sitting next to him. The, that combination of the coaching staff really was something special for us going in to the start that 96 season. All of these guys had been to the postseason. All of these guys had World Series histories. They they motivated us to say, hey guys, you if you get there, it's going to be one of the greatest thrills that you've ever been a part of. We got to work hard to get there. They knew how to motivate us to get us going. But really the turning point in that season was when David Cohn came back with an aneurysm. When he, when he got his aneurysm in April, when he came back in June and pitched the game in Oakland, it just took us to the next level. Like, this guy survived an aneurysm. Here he is out here pitching seven no-hit innings. And, you know, you can see he was scuffling, like, as far as physically. But he went out there, and he busted his ass. And I tell you what, he inspired and took us to another level after that game. And from the rest of the season on, we just played off that. Nice. That was big, too. I remember that game because you guys, Oakland, in their heyday in the 80s, I remember you know, the Yankees were scuffling and you guys were playing Oakland and you could not beat the A's to save your life. The late 80s, early 90s Yankees against the A's, the Bash brothers, and they were always kind of a nemesis, you know, uh, because it was like they were the they were the top of the heap. And that's where you wanted the Yankees to be. So that was a huge, huge game for Coney, Coney there. And that I can see where Cone is a kind of a clubhouse leader for, among pitchers, but I guess among everybody, too. Right. So that's great. Yep. Yeah, David was, you know, he was the, the MLB rep for our team. Mm -hmm. Everybody kind of looked up to him. Jimmy, was there any hesitation with Jeter? You know, you guys bring in a lot of veterans. He's this rookie. He didn't have a great spring training. I didn't remember that, but apparently Jeter did not have a great spring training. I remember Tony Fernandez ends up breaking his arm, and it's like, boom, Derek Jeter's the shortstop. Were there any rumblings like, mm, I don't know, is this kid ready to be the shortstop of the New York Yankees? Were you guys thinking that at all or no? You know what? He, the way he carried himself, you know, you, 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 you were like, okay, let's just sit back and watch. It wasn't, I don't think it was ever a point where, you know, is this kid going to be able to do it? It's like, let's see if he can do it. Because you can see some talent there. You can see the hard work ethic. You can see, you know, the effort being put in. So when, whenever you get somebody that gives effort and the results don't come right away, you still respect that and, and want to see that person do good. I think that's what Derek had from all those veteran guys is, hey, you know what? This kid's struggling in spring training, but guess what? He's out there every day taking those ground balls, taking extra hitting, doing the extra stuff, not just walking away, you know, crying about not playing well. 
And then, of course, when, when Tony got hurt, and then we get to opening day in Cleveland, and the kid hits a home run, it changed everything. And it gave him that swagger that Derek Jeter over the years developed. It gave him a little more confidence from that first game in Cleveland. Jackal, I've said this to Jim multiple times, and I'm sure you would agree. He's got the biggest and most significant Yankee home run of the last 30 to 35 years. I don't even think it's close. Atlanta was a favorite going into that World Series. They win the first two games. They smoke the Yankees at Yankee Stadium. Then all of a sudden, they're crawling back in game four. It's six to three. And the slider in the eyes of Larratt. Jimmy, you realize like Yankee fans have rewatched that home run over and over and over again. Like it, it never gets old, man. Like there are certain home runs that you see over time. It never gets old. That home run, man, never gets old, dude. Well, we, we were talking about it last night in the suites because I did a couple of appearances with the Yankees last night. We had a bunch of kids that were 12, 11, and 12 years old who, of course, were never around their mind. But because of the beauty of the F Network and because of the classics and because of all the replays of some of those biggest games, these kids actually knew who I was. And that's the, that's the beauty of being a New York Yankee is that no one ever forgets. And no one, ever, you know, there's a lineage that's passed down and, and these you know, these people know. But yeah, that home run, not only was it important to turn that series around, but because we won in 96 and we didn't lose. If we would have lost in 96 and they lost in 97, George, the story that Gene Michael used to tell was when they lost in 97, George came walking into Gene Michael's office and said, get rid of Tori, get rid of Mariano, I'm done. You know, we're, we're, we're going to start over. And Gene Michael said to him, George, did you forget about 96? We just won. And George said, I'll give him one more year. That's it. And then, of course, 98, they go on that magical run. Joe Torrey invites me to his dinner every year just to tell that story to people because it, it doesn't sound the same coming from him. But, yeah, that 96 team winning, the home run changing everything, it really led the way for that dynasty. I mean, there was an old skit on Saturday Night Live with Chris Farley where he did a talk show and he would have like Paul McCartney on and he would just say, remember remember that time you were in the Beatles? So this could degenerate into that with me just being like, remember when you hit that home run? But that 90s, well, you, you had two of the biggest home runs in Yankees postseason recent history. You had game two in 95, which was enormous. And then 25-year-old me was convinced that they were going to storm into the World Series then was that home run. And I remember screaming late. It was late at night. It was 15th inning, right? And yep. you hit the home run to win the game. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to lose three games in, in Seattle. But Seattle, you know, they had Griffey. They had, had Yankee killer Edgar Martinez. These things happen. But that at-bat you had against Wollers in 96, fouling off pitch after pitch after pitch when he's, you know, he was the Mariano of, the, of that series because that was before Mariano was Mariano, right? That was Wetland was the closer. Mariano was the setup guy. Wollers was the deadliest, you know, closer in baseball. And for you to hit that home run, I mean, I think you're right. That just catapulted that team. And that just took the heart right out of Atlanta. They were done after that. You could see it in their eyes, I think, as a fan at home. I don't know if you could see it on the field. And they were still formidable, I'm sure. But that was phenomenal. This is where Joe Torrey was such a great motivator. So we win game three. And he tells everybody in the locker room, hey, guys, look at this article. It was an article in the Atlanta Constitution that said the Braves were so happy they swept the first two games in New York so they don't have to go back to New York because they don't want to play there. And he said, if we win one more game, 
they have to go back. And they don't want to. Let's win this game tonight. Of course, we go out there. We go down 6 nothing right away. And I remember we, even when we came back to 6-3, and O'Neal got struck out and uh, Tino struck out, Pat Kelly and I looked at each other and said, and because Wolders was warming up in the bullpen at the time, we said, thank God we didn't get swept. That was kind of <laughs> the mindset. Exactly. And then for us to be able to turn that around, be able to make them come back to New York, we knew we had them. Nice. Jimmy, you had the unique experience of playing against the Yankees in the World Series for the San Diego Padres. But then you come back the following year. The Costas line is great. You could get this guy off an island somewhere, and he's going to hit a home run in the month of October. It was great coming off the bench. You know the deal. But for you specifically, how different was it? And could you tell the difference from 96 and where the Yankees were and then you walk in in 1999? Could you just tell, oh, my goodness, this is the team that was fresh and brand new and learning how to win to like, holy smokes, I'm walking into this like well-oiled machine? Yeah, I mean, exactly. When I got traded back, um, it, it was it was an interesting situation. I was I got I broke my hand June twenty first with the Padres in ninety nine, and I was on a rehab assignment in Las Vegas. And Kevin Towers calls me up and say, um, "We're trading you back to the Red Sox. Um, you know we, we need to get some we need to get something for you because you know you you have, we have an option here next year. So or no, I, I was a free agent the next year. So I said, "Well, Kevin, please, I do not want to go back to Boston." I said, you know, Joe, Joe Kerrigan and I couldn't stand each other. Dan Duquette and I couldn't stand each other. I said, I do not want to go back. And he said, okay, what, what, what do you want to do? I said, give me 24 hours. And I called up George Steinbrenner's secretary at the time, a woman named Debbie Nicolosi. And I said, Debbie, please get word to George. They're trying to trade me to Boston. 24 hours later, I was traded back to the New York Yankees. Nice. I came in, and of course, everybody thought that I was coming back to catch Pettit because he was struggling. And, you know, Joe brings me in the office and says, hey, Jimmy, listen, we didn't know this was happening. George did this on his own. And you're here, not, you're not here to catch. You're here to play first base, spell Tino against the tough left-hander, maybe DH, but we really brought you back to the postseason. And I said, okay, no problem. I'm just happy to be part of this, you know, this ball club. And honestly, JJ, you could tell after they beat me in 98 how good this team was. And it was just great to be back and be a part of. You knew, we knew we were going to the World Series. It's just a matter of whether we won it or not. And that was a different mindset than we had before. And Jimmy, let's be honest. The Braves had no chance in 99. As good as they were, and they had three of the best pitchers of all time, they legitimately had no chance in that series, dude. Zero. Nope. No, it was great. You know, we swept him in four. Clemens got his first ring. And, uh, you know, of course, I only got one at bat in that World Series. What did I do? I hit the home run, <laughs> which became the last home run of the century. So that's the third home run that I have a little nostalgia about. So great. I was, yeah, and, the, and the funny thing was, if you watch that home run and you watch as I come into the dugout, Jeter and Knobloch are the first two to greet me. And they're like, no way that happened because I had told them when I got traded back, I could I broke my hand, so I couldn't hit the ball out in batting practice. But I told them, 
I'll hit a home run when it counts. And sure, <laughs> that was my one home run that year. That's great. Good stuff. Jimmy, thanks so much for doing this. You are the king. We love yeah. these stories. <laughs> I, I could sit here for hours doing this, and I'm thinking, who is the perfect bridge guy from the Stump Merrill Yankees to the Dynasty Yankees and a guy who was a main part of it? So thanks so much for the time. And keep hitting those bombs on the golf course. Now you've transitioned to bombs off of Tim Belcher to 300-yard drives. Must be nice. Yes, it's not a bad job. Not a bad job. Jacko, what are the old Yankees we're going to get on over the next couple episodes? I got to get in the lab here. We got to brainstorm a little bit. Anybody, you, you're connected. You're you're the big guy in New York sports. Well, I mean, so I'm listen, sure you got, got, you got everybody's number. I mean, I, I I can't get you know I can't get Larry Bird uh, on the phone. You know Simmons might be able to do that. I can't get Larry Bird or uh, Carl Yastrzemski. But you know we do uh, we do have a couple of New York athletes and New York Yankees over the years that we can get into contact with. So we'll be uh, putting those contacts to use, bro. I'm excited. Surprise me. I'm gonna be I like, like a, I'm gonna be like a little kid. I'm gonna be weepy. I'm excited. All right, so maybe I'll let you know like an, an hour before just so right, you can get so some get of those jitters excited. out of your system right. and away you go. Dude, Absolutely. how much fun is this going to be? I mean, oh. dude, I can't get enough. I can't get enough. This documentary, it's phenomenal. It's 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 unbelievable. Um, it, I love it. I, I can't get enough. It can't be long enough for me. It could be 500 episodes. I'd be into it. It's Yankee fan porn. Jacko and I are going to be back after episode two and after every single Jeter captain episode and we're going to get nostalgic. Uh, we might have a couple of cocktails. We might be shedding some tears. Buddy, I'm glad you're doing this with me. I, I feel like you're my long-lost pal, and it's making up for all the time you had to deal with Simmons and his Red Sox bullshit over the years. I appreciate it. I deserve this. By the way, this. nice, and, nice and Bill, now, uh, now that I have you here, nice of Bill for, uh, for him to chime in on the Yankees. Uh, you know, it doesn't say anything for three and a half months. I, I thought he'd be busy breaking down like the eighth and the ninth bin on the Celtics. I don't know. I'm surprised. Well, he's got a uh, he's got a five part uh, podcast about the twelfth man on the Orlando Magic. And he took a break. <laughs> he took a break. The battle for the twelfth man position, but uh, he took a break from that to give us a little shit about his happy that the Yankees split with the Red Sox. So uh, yeah, I'm glad he noticed it's baseball season. But now I'm sure he's back to the hoops. So naturally, all right, buddy. I'll see you for episode right. two. Sounds good. Thanks. Good work by Stefan. We're back right after episode two of The Captain. We're signing off. Enjoy. Be good, everybody. Bye.